Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. In this episode of This Pathological Life, we're looking at TB in Australia. Travis, what's prompted you to shine the light on TB? This all started probably just last week, to be honest. Uh, when I was a registrar training at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as a, um, in anatomical pathology at the time, I enjoy structured reports and writing programs for structural reports for pathologists. Uh, and ever since uh, being a registrar, I thought, oh, there's easier ways than a microscopic description and macroscopic description dictating way of reporting. And so I went back and I thought, well, look, how ingrained is pathology reporting in our profession? And then I was surprised to find that our structural reports pretty much haven't changed in over 100 years. And I managed to track down the the very first pathology report. Uh, Now, it was Melbourne Pathology at the time, and this was the first issued report. And, And here you go. And can you can you tell us what you what what you can read on there? Okay, well I'm holding a copy of this report from the pathological department. It's dated the third of August. That must be 1916, and uh, we have no name of a patient. Age. Oh no, no, we removed the name of the patient, so uh, ah. de-identified. Okay, so even to oh, this well, that's, day. Oh, well, that's me being pedantic. So, uh, you know, I we took it off just in case. Okay, that's good practice. So the patient was, looks like, 23 years old, and uh, Kilvington is the name of the medical officer. Honorary medical officer. Oh, okay, from Ward 10. <laughs> this is number one. So here's the specimen, and uh, what Kilvington has written, Dr. Kilvington, I, I presume, mm-hmm. uh, is villi and granulation tissue from knee joint that's the specimen and in the report uh, it's written tb giant cell systems present so he's signed that now at the time that i got this i remember talking to some pathologists about this report because it's quite a find to find the very first you know pathology report of a department over a hundred years old and some of the pathologists raised an eyebrow and i sort of looked at it and, and they said well do you think that's the right diagnosis well, there was a bit of a discussion about that ended up you know nothing coming but and then when I was here at ClinPath I thought okay well this is an interesting you know thing I was doing some research for some other podcasts uh, that were writing up for the episode and I came across this again I thought oh this is a you know fun bit of story uh, so I put it on Twitter and it got quite a, a response from people of like mind pathologists around that's really interesting and I did put the question out there you know do you think this is a misdiagnosis and that created some discussion, uh, and it led me to this. So there was Dr. Metlay from the University of Rochester who pressed me a little bit and saying, well, it could be the right diagnosis. They saw it a lot of those times. Uh, you know, and, and it was actually quite enjoyable getting that you know, discussion on Twitter with you know, pathologists around the world. So uh, we loved that they reached out to us and you know, encouraged that more and more, uh, and vice versa. Uh, I got some old reports from, you know, uh, St. Bartholomew's in London at the same time because I wanted to see, and again, the structure hasn't changed. But it made me wonder, is this the correct diagnosis? 
Uh, and uh, there was, uh, Dr. Metlay did raise, there was actually uh, a report from the National Health and Medical Research Council, which was from uh, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, about TB. And it said... At the beginning of the 20th century, TB was a major cause of death in Australia, ranking first among females and second among males. The data at this time can be a little bit incomplete. And, and again, I will I, I admit that... I wasn't aware of how prevalent it was in the 1900s. And so I was thinking, well, we don't have a problem now that we didn't have a problem then. But that was incorrect. So, you know, thanks to Dr. Metley, as I say, I appreciate it. And that was the purpose behind this podcast. And so I did, went back and we, we saw the top 10 causes of death for males and females. So looking at males, t- tuberculosis was number two. The first being um, organic heart disease. And then the third was diarrhea and you know, then they've gone salinity and congenital. So, I mean, their classification is very different to ours now. Uh, but for females, they had tuberculosis as top one uh, with heart disease second, diarrhea uh, number three, and salinity and congenital number four and five. So it's interesting. Now, this is data from 1907. So you know, is it reliable? Well, it's what we have. We already know that from, you know, our asbestos episode that sometimes they interpreted the disease differently. And sometimes asbestos was, uh, or mesothelioma or lung disease, you know, fibrosis was misinterpreted as congestion. Uh, So, but on the face of it, TB was very prevalent. Uh, And then there was uh, another uh, comment that Dr. Metlay stated. In those days, a lot of surgical pathology was done by surgeons. Pathologists just did posts. Was this done by a surgeon or a pathologist? And that is took me down to, we'll, we'll have a look at that in a, in a moment. But for, for me, with regards to this, it's context is everything. Uh, and so I sort of wanted to go back and say, well, look, what was medicine? What was pathology like when this report was written and the lead up to the report being written? Uh, and it's very interesting. You know, uh, you know, our first medical schools wasn't until the University of Melbourne was established in 1862. Uh, Sydney got theirs in 1883 and Adelaide was in 1885. And prior to this, Doctors would train as an apprenticeship, go over to Britain to have their exams, get their sign-off, come back and practice. Uh, in between 1813 and 1860, there was 30 men that would went to Britain to get their examination of signing off because the first woman wasn't uh, permitted or the first woman graduated. Uh, her name was Laura Margaret Fowler in 1891. And then... 13 women in the next five years uh, then graduated as well. So they're pioneers in this, but it was a very much male-dominated area. The If we look at the University of Melbourne, uh, you know, when they established in 1862, in 1864, three medical students uh, in their first year started at Melbourne Hospital. But it's it's a bit interesting because... There was no clinical lecturers assigned uh, to the hospital until 1884. So I'm guessing it was still somewhat of a, an apprenticeship uh, type, you know, learning and see how it goes. 
Nurses, well, in at the at Melbourne Hospital, uh, they didn't need any formal qualifications before 1890, and the first theatre nurse was in 1912. We then have Melbourne Hospital in 1913, which changed its name to Royal Melbourne Hospital in 1934, so well down the track from this time. And at the time in 1913, they had four operating theatres. It wasn't until early 1900s that just basic histopathology was starting to be documented and, you know, recorded in textbooks. And we have an explosion of information that happens from the 1900s to the mid-1900s of about our knowledge and understanding. So when we find this report, we find it. It's on the 3rd of August in 1916. The name of the doctor is Dr. Basil Kilvington. And he signed this first pathology report. Now, it says Ward 10, but we know that it was actually quite a small institution. I'm not quite sure. Was that Bed 10? Was it Ward 10? Because I don't think there would have been 10 wards at that time. We have his bibliography, thanks to the uh, information age, we were able to find out who this Dr. Kelvington was. So looking here, the honorary... Medical officer Basil Kilvington lived from 1877 to 1947. He was a surgeon and medical researcher, was born in Hartlepool in England in 1877. His family emigrated to Victoria in 1888. He went to Camberwell Grammar School, then the University of Melbourne. He was a resident medical officer at the Melbourne Hospital, uh, 1899, and established a practice at Camberwell. Um, of interest, um, his interest was regeneration of nerves, for which he won the David Syme Research Scholarship in 1908. He experimented with dogs to show that cut automatic nerves could regenerate. In 1918, he was elected honorary surgeon to inpatients at Melbourne Hospital and later practised at Prince Henry's and Epworth Hospitals. He was also the president of numerous societies and one of the founders of the College of Surgeons of Australia. In fact, the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons was formed in 1927. So he's a very well-regarded surgeon. So Dr. Metlag was absolutely correct. These weren't uh, pathologists reporting these. These were surgeons with the knowledge of the time. And here you are daring to question him. <laughs> well, this brings us it. So this is the context of when this report was written with the knowledge of the time. So let's have a look at TB. It was March and it was cold and windy and I saw this huge castle. I thought, that's not a hospital. Not that I knew what a hospital looked like. And um, my father carried me in and they said, that was it, three days. It'll only be for three days, Anne, and you'll be back home. And so I agreed, but it turned out to be four years and one day. Anne Shaw was nine when she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and sent to the Craggy Noss Sanatorium in South Wales. The year was 1950. It's probably difficult now, it's so far back, to realise the fear that TB had. It was the white death. People were absolutely terrified because they didn't know how it was transmitted. They, they used to think it was only poor people got it, that it ran in families, that was another thing. And so, you know, people kept away from you. Let's continue this investigation of TB in Australia and 
in this second part of the program, I'm worried that I have Greek words to pronounce, <laughs> Travis. We, we do. So the history of TB is quite extensive. Uh, it's very interesting. But yes, uh, many cultures, uh, different races have come across it worldwide. The, the definition of, is that it, it's a growth of nodules and tubercles uh, in the tissues. Um, this is because of an organism, but especially for mycobacterium uh, tuberculosis, it especially likes the lungs. So there are a variety of names that you encounter when you're examining the history of TB, and got a few of you that, a few of for you, Steve. Physis, consumption, the white death, the Great White Plague, Robber of Youth, Captain of All These Men of Death, The Graveyard Cough, and King's Evil. TB is from ancient times. Uh, you know, the second millennium, we have a Babylonian king who's mentioning it, and it's also a Chinese in the third millennium. Homer's Odyssey in, in the 8th century BCE uh, is believed to refer to TB uh, in, in his writings. Grievous consumption which took the soul from the body and caused a person to lie in sickness, a long time wasting away. So in 1000 to 600 BCE, we have uh, ancient Indian medical literature referring to TB-like disease as uh, Yakshama. We have evidence in Egyptian uh, mummies in you know, 2400 BCE of bony uh, tubercles on uh, lesions. Clearly what we now describe as Pott's disease, where we get TB that you know migrates to the, the spine and causes dif- deformities. And we know that that's what they are, being able to see it and examine it now. The Bible references, now there's words I can't say, in Deuteronomy and uh, Leviticus. I can't say. Do you know how to say those words? Shakapeth. Shakapeth? Shakafet? Let's go with Shakafet. That's in Old Testament. And these were, these were wasting diseases. So uh, there's Peruvian mummies uh, also showing the evidence of pot disease. So TB that goes to the spine. In ancient Greek, we have thysis. And again, this was noted as a dwindling or a wasting disease. And Hippocrates gave a description. Many of those who had been long gradually declining took to bed with symptoms of thysis. Many, and in fact, most of them died. And of those confined to bed, most of them were affected by these diseases in the following manner. Fevers accompanied with rigors, constant sweats, extremities very cold and warmed with difficulty. Sputer, small, dense, concocted, but brought up rarely and with difficulty. And in those who encountered the most violent symptoms, there was no concoction at all, but they continued throughout spitting crude matters. So he also noted uh, a certain type of patient that was affected. Physis makes its attacks chiefly between the age of 18 and 35. He notes that young people are affected. We also have Claudius of Pergamum from uh, 174 CE. uh, And he noted that patients have fever, sweating, and they cough up this bloodstained sputum. He noted there's, there's tubercles in the lungs, but he called them thuma or fuma. 
depending on which we go. We also have Romans referring to it as uh, tabs. Then there's not much uh, in the Middle Ages uh, with regards to it, but we start finding that we're getting increased literature in the 1600s. So in 1679, we have an Amsterdam physician who described this as a granulosa tubercles that infected the lung. But they also noted another disease, and they thought it was separate. It's called a scrofula, which is an infection of the lymph glands of the neck. Now, they thought that was something else. Later on, the link is made, but not at this time. 1960, there's an author by the name of John Bunyan who wrote in The Life and Death of Mr. Badman. He parts from his wife. Diseases attack him under captain consumption. He rots away and dies in sinful security. Yet the captain of all these men of death that came against him to take him away was the consumption, for it was that that brought him down to the grave. We now start to get the term consumption coming in, and clearly it's associated with the wasting and, and people saying it's it's taking over. We have Jean-Jacques uh, Maguet, who's a Genevan physician, who also noted that you know people would often get what they said is uh, millet seeds going through organs. And that's what we call this day when it's widespread and you get these little seed-like, it's named after this, it's called millerary TB. A little bit of a touch on the, the scafula. So this is the name of the king's evil. And this was when TB goes to the neck and it ulcerates and what we call suppurative inflammation. So a, a pussy inflammation comes out. But it was believed at the time that this was cured by the king's touch. So in the 13th century, we had King Charles II ended up placing his hands on over 92,000 people over a span of 25 years because it was believed that was the healing touch. Even Shakespeare in Macbeth refers to King Edward's healing touch of, of Scofula. Strangely visited people, all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye. The mere despair of surgery he cures, hanging a golden stamp around their necks, put on with holy prayers, and tis spoken to the succeeding royal he leaves the healing benediction. In early 1800s in New England, when there were Tebri outbreaks, no one understood what they were. Unfortunately, they went down the line of the first family member, so the people started to believe that the first family member who died would become a vampire and return and infect the rest of the family. So they had a whole bunch of vampire picnics where they would dig up the suspected vampire, perform a ritual to stop them becoming a vampire. It was an interesting time, and in 1834, we see the first reference by a German physician, John Lucas uh, Schalinen, who referred to it as tuberculosis. Now, he didn't call it that, and it's associated with tubercles, so the, the lesions. It's not until 1853 that Hermann Bremer, who's a medical graduate of the University of Berlin, used the term tuberculosis of the lung. And this is where he started to see sanatoriums cropping up. Between 1851 and 1910, we start to see the terms such as robber of youth, white death or the great white plague now the reason why it was called the white death or the great white plague is these people would get such a severe anemia from the disease they would be really pale so that was why they thought there was the name over one third of deaths with tb were between the ages of 15 and 34 over half of those were between the ages of 20 and 24 and that's where you get the robber of youth coming from and at this time many believed that this was a hereditary disease it wasn't known that uh, this was an infectious cause. 
But we find in 1865, the uh, French military surgeon Jean Antonine Villemin noted that soldiers who would come into the barracks and stayed at the barracks over a long time started to get more TB than soldiers in the field. He would say that the young, healthy soldiers would come in would take them an average of one to two years to get this consumption disease after their posting. And then he proved it that humans could transmit it to rabbits. So somehow it was going from one to the next. And then in 1882, we we get Robert Koch, who discovered the organism. He called it a tubercle bacillus. And using a modified stain, which will explain why it had to be modified a little bit later, he found this organism and he identified that it existed in the tissues of animals and humans with the disease, whichever name you wanted to use at the time, so consumption here. But it was a really difficult organism to grow. He was able to grow it, but in the end, he was able to prove that when he did grow it and injected it into an animal, they got consumption. Now, he attempted to do some uh, inoculation with dead bacillus and try and actually immunize. Uh, That didn't work at all, but he received the Nobel Prize in 1905. This is when we first start to see this as an infectious disease. In early 1900s, there was started to be attempts of contact tracing, albeit patchy at the time. We then see now when sanatoriums started to become in vogue, because how do you stop an infectious disease? Isolation. So the first sanatorium in the U.S. was built in 1885. It's at Saranac Lake in New York. And this was done by Dr. Edward Livingston uh, Trudeau, who had TB, but he found that the fresh air was beneficial. So he ended up presenting it to the American, American Climatology Association in 1887 and said fresh air is useful, is beneficial. And they started building sanatoriums for, you know, fresh air therapy. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he had on and on bouts with that and ended up dying of TB in 1916. But sanatoriums started to increase a lot. So in the US in 1904, they had 115 sanatoriums, about 8,000 patients. And in 1953, there was 839 sanatoriums with 136,000 patients. In Australia, we had the same kind of growth with regards to uh, our population. The one that I've just taken note of uh, in Victoria is a Heatherton TB sanatorium was opened in 1913 that went to 1976. And they had 100 beds when they opened up. This would have been probably where our patient may have gone. Certainly, if they hadn't already had TB, that's where they were going. And that was the treatment of the time. The natural history of TB, though, it's often fatal without treatment. A third of patients die within one year, and around 65% die within five years. So of those who do survive, around 60% of those go into spontaneous remission, but it's not always we get latent TB, which means it goes dormant, but it can reactivate. I mean, if we take a moment just to look at the organism, it's a pretty resilient organism. It can survive weeks and months just on inanimate objects, and they often talk about soil or or cow dung. If it does infect, then it can just stay there for years not doing anything and then reactivate. But it is killed at, you know, greater than 65 degrees Celsius or around 150 degrees Fahrenheit. UV sunlight kills it and most laboratory cleaning agents like you know ethanol 70% or formaldehyde or or chlorine compounds kill it. What is the presentation? The the presentation is like a primary presentation. It looks like a pneumonia so you get a consolidation in a lobe. Uh, You'll have lymphadenopathy normally in the hilar region and maybe a pleural effusion 
But when it's secondary, because it's an organism that likes, uh, it's an aerobic organism, we tend to get secondary infection in the top of the lungs. So it's up the top. It's not motile, so it's not moving. It's not spore forming, so it doesn't go dormant because it goes into a spore. It's weakly gram positive or gram neutral. And that's because of the cell wall of uh, mycobacterium is quite complex. It has peptidoglycan, which does take up the gram stain, but only a little bit. But the significant proportion of the cell wall is made up of mycolic acids and free lipids, which don't really stain, which is why we have to use a special stain on it called the ZN stain to actually identify and highlight it in what we look at. And when we look at the reproductive value, depending on which outbreak you're looking at, it's from anywhere from 0.2 to 3.5 of a reproductive value. It thrives in poor, crowded communities with poor sanitation and, and, and hygiene, and it's droplet spread that can be sometimes aerosol. But if a single droplet can, can contain about 3,000 infectious organisms in it, primary infection is less infective than secondary. This is a pretty hard organism to treat. We're now even dealing with drug-resistant treatment, TB is an extensive problem worldwide. There are echoes of coronavirus in some of this, aren't there? Every epidemic will have it. This is a lesson that comes up, hopefully not too often. Back with more in a moment. All right, let's bring this discussion about TB to a conclusion. Travis, where would you like to go next? Let's look at... at where where it is right at the moment. So just from a general perspective, TB affects about a quarter of the world's population. So you have active and latent TB. And again, you have much more prevalence of TB in poorer and developing nations. Now, Australia in 1907 had case rate of about 108 or 109 per 100,000 cases per population. And as we mentioned, it was a leading cause of death. In the year 2000, we had that at down at 0.3 per 100,000 population. We're one of the lowest rates worldwide. We have about 1% to 2% of multidrug resistant TB of those cases. And at this time, two-thirds of the cases are in Victoria and New South Wales, which is surprising to me, but we have the highest rate in Northern Territory. And this is because the Indigenous population, so Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Uh, have six times the rate than non-Indigenous Australian-born population. Latent infection is about 5% of Australian residents, with, you know, 0.4% being Australian-born. About 17% of all overseas-born Australian residents uh, will be associated or have this, and they have an increased risk of the first five years of reactivation but over 90% of them won't reactivate. And it's unpredictable who will have a TB reactivation or not. When we're looking at testing TB, there is the Mantu skin test, which we tend not to do now. So you would actually get a little dot on your skin. You put an antigen in there uh, that is associated with uh, TB. And if you get a red dot reaction, that means you've most likely been exposed to it in the past. So this is an exposure test to say, have you got latent infection or potential to have latent infection? So we have a preference for a test that's called quantiferon gold, uh, which is an interferon gamma release test. So we take some blood, we challenge it with some antigens, the, the T cells, and if they react, then they've been exposed to that antigen in the past, which is associated with TB. 
So that's a much more sensitive test and useful. A gold standard is actually for sputum. So if someone's got uh, coughing up sputum, the direct stain that we do, if we see what we call acid-fast bacillus, so that's because of the staining technique, if that's in the sputum uh, and we grow it up, then that's a really strong predictor, so a sensitive test for TB. So the sensitivity for a sputum culture of TB, if it's positive, is around 80%. If we do around three cultures and it comes to a sensitivity of 90%. The problem with TB is it's really slow growing. So we have to keep those cultures for four to six weeks. So if something grows up really quickly, it's not likely to be TB. It's actually likely to be something else. We also have now PCR testing, which is very sensitive but it's only sensitive if there's organisms in the sputum. So about 98%, but there's organisms have to be there. If they're not there, the sensitivities drop down to about 70%. So this is a, usually the trademark name of, of that is a gene expert, which is one that is commonly around Australia. Uh, and you can also do PCR testing for drug resistance. Uh, but when we look at the histology, what we're looking at is what we call granulomas. And that's what we call classically in TB necrotizing granulomas. So this is epithelioid histiocytes with just degenerating stuff in the middle of that collection. And that's a classic TB type picture. If we come back to our report, it doesn't talk about granulomas. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it hasn't been stated. It does mention giant cells. Mm. Giant cells are formed by macrophages fusing together and that's why you get a multiple nuclei. And we now know the pathway to develop uh, giant cell formation. Uh, and you can get different types. They're, they're all called, you know, some are Langerhans, foreign body, Teuton giant cells, and a number of others. And we know that with a TB infection, if you get a highly virulent mycobacterium, they get larger giant cells, so up to greater than 15 nuclei. And if it's lower virulence, it's a less than you know, seven nuclei. But the thing here is the important point of the knee joint. TB is predominantly a lung disease. So it does go elsewhere, but in only about 3% of cases. So 35 to 40% of cases of those that 3% go to the lymph nodes, about 20% go to the pleura, 10 to 15% go to the genitourinary, only about 10% go to bone, and the majority of that goes to the spine, POTS disease. Makes it less likely this is TB then. That's, that's right. So, you know, this would be a really unusual presentation for it to be that. Now, he has mentioned that there is systems present, but... The top differential diagnosis for this is, an, is a condition called pigmented villonodular synovitis, uh, or shortened to PVNS. And now this is actually quite a rare disease, you know, two per million per population per year. And it's a slowly progressive lesion that is benign, usually has, we don't know the cause, Male and females equally affected, but it usually affects between the age of 20 and 40. So the presentation is it's just a slow onset. They have swelling or pain in the joint, but 80% of these cases occur in the knee. And they'll either have some stiffness or catching of their knee. And histology, when we look at it, you've got synovium, which is brown and, and finger-like uh, villus projections that go into nodules. And again, we don't know the cause. You can have hemosiderin, which is bleeding or blood degradation, and you get multinucleated giant cells present. It can invade into the sub-synovial tissue, cartilage and bone, and then you get a clinical distinction about diffuse versus local. The problem with this 
is this was first described by Jaffe, Lichtenstein and Sutro in an article, Pigmented Villanodular Synovitis, Bacitis and Tendosynovitis, but that wasn't written until 1941. My question then, Steve, is it doesn't look like it's the right diagnosis, but this was a well-qualified surgeon who would have been practicing with the best knowledge of the time. If it doesn't seem to be, the doesn't fit, that's from our perspective, is it wrong because you didn't know it was wrong at the time? Mm. Could he have been diagnosing what was yet to be quantified? Or when statistics say this is a two in such and such chance, it does mean there are possibly two cases. He might have just stumbled on one of those rare situations in which TB was impacting the knee. And that's, as I say, my my perspective, I think it was the wrong one. But then this is hindsight, 100 years later, with a disease that was not known at the time. It's hard not to look back at it and say, well, what am I doing right now that in 50 years' time won't be seen as correct? Is it wrong? Well, I think what we do know is given the pedigree of the doctor, it would have been a thoughtful diagnosis and not a knee-jerk one. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.